Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm very excited about the entrepreneur that we have today. You know, our guest definitely, you know, is going to teach us a thing or two about doing the full cycle as an entrepreneur. Uh, and and he's actually, you know, from Canada. So I guess uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Stephen Kramer. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alejandro. It's great to be here. So originally born and raised in Montreal, Canada. So how was life growing up there? Life is uh, was great growing up in in uh, in Montreal, particularly um, you know being in a in a bilingual uh, province in Canada. Um, you know, it was, it, I think it was, it gave a a very interesting perspective in growing up of of learning two languages. Um, you know, speaking franglais, a mix of English and French every day, and and uh, and learning. You know, uh, having a, a learning that had a very big focus on the culture and um, you know the the multicultural aspects of uh, of the world. I think it, it sets a lot of people up for uh, you know viewing the world in a little bit of a different way. So it was great uh, living and growing up in Montreal, Canada, and I was happy to uh, stay in Montreal. Um, you know, particularly uh, at a point when I graduated university, and a lot of a lot of my friends were moving out to the states and into other uh, areas. Yeah, and I know that uh, also you had the entrepreneurial, you know, like very deeply rooted in the family because uh, your father also an entrepreneur. So, so I guess how do you think that that influenced, you know, the the choices that you've made and how you know you've turned out to be also an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, my my father started his first software company in 1968. Um, you know, they were still using punch cards back there, um, and uh, and ran that company for for 30 years. Um, so certainly, growing up, um, you know, being in an entrepreneurial software uh, environment was uh, was something that um, you know I think helped really define me. Uh, my father taught me um, some great values around. Uh, hard work and and dedication, um, but certainly the weekend trips to the office and having exposure to computers early on in my life um, inspired me to want to follow in his footsteps and and I fell in love with technology and uh, it became a big part of of everything that I wanted to do uh, coming out of university. And you went to McGill. 
I always say it wrong. I mean, it's Miguel, Miguel, how, how would you say it? McGill University. There you go. There you go. And you, you studied commerce there. I did. I studied uh, information technology as well as accounting. Um, my father is a, an accountant um, uh, by trade. He's a, a CA or a CPA in the U.S. Uh, so growing up, my brother and I were always, um, uh, you know, supposed to follow in the similar footsteps, because, you know, study accounting, go do an MBA. Um, certainly my brother, uh, who is in finance has, has gone down that path. Uh, for me, I, uh, what's interesting is, um, I started working at my father's company, uh, full-time after I graduated from university. And, uh, and then we landed up having the opportunity to start our, our first company together in 1999. And, uh, He told me, we're going to start this company. He had just sold his previous company. Uh, we'll start this company, but you have to go do your MBA. And uh, sure enough, I ended up getting accepted to an MBA. I was young. I was like 22 years old at the time. Uh, I got accepted to Oxford. And, and uh, we started to have a lot of fun being entrepreneurs together and growing a business. And, and ultimately, uh, he admitted that I had earned my own MBA uh, in the organization after deferring a couple of years. And And uh, we kept at it. It was a company called iCongo that was a, a leading e-commerce uh, provider. Platform and, provider. It, and, and we'll talk about iCongo uh, more in detail because, I mean, the, the outcome, I mean, is pretty, pretty spectacular. Um, but I guess here, I mean, there's a, the, the book, you know, from Noam Wasserman. It's, a, it's called the, um, the, I think it's the co-founder dilemma. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if, if, I under, if I remember well the, the title, but... But on this book, what he goes into detail is into some of the difficulties that you find when you're working with a family member, because sometimes, you know, like it's very, very difficult, you know, like to say the things that you want to say because you don't want to hurt each other's feelings. So I guess how was, you know, for you guys to really, you know, be with each other and be able to give honest feedback to each other and, and be able to, 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 to move, you know, forward? I think, you know, I think that it was probably very challenging, I remember, in the first year. And then we, we found our rhythm. Uh, my father has always been a great mentor to myself and to my other partners. And um, we found a very good, uh, I guess, rhythm of, of being able to separate work uh, from, from family life. Uh, certainly, there were times where we spent too much time speaking about uh, business at the dinner table. Um, Uh, but my mother and, and my wife, uh, you know, would pull us back. And, and uh, we always found a good way to, to have arguments, to compromise. And ultimately, it comes down to uh, respect. My father has been a serial entrepreneur, very respectful. And, um, you know, we took, uh, you know, we certainly respected, uh, I certainly respected his point of view uh, throughout uh, my career uh, still today. And, and that helps a lot in, in managing some of the emotions that come from, you know, mixing family with, uh, with business. Now, you know, granted, I have uh, some friends where it hasn't, it hasn't worked out. You know, mixing family with business can be uh, toxic sometimes, but it, but it works for us. And, uh, you know, we used, to, we used to joke around that, um, you know, he'd say I was an SOB, um, you know, a son of a boss. Um, And, you know, later in life, later in life, uh, you know, I, I became his boss, too. And, and he was cool with that as well. So so, uh, you know, it's it's I think that his attitude towards uh, me and respecting 
a different point of view and uh, you know the view of a younger generation was very important in it as well. And how did you guys divide their responsibilities when when you went at it with iCongo? Uh, you know, my, my father always included, you know, certainly I, at the beginning, I was very much on the technical and product design side. Um, and then I moved into sales. Uh, my father always did a really good job at, at making sure that he was including myself and the, the rest of the management team. We were young, you know, a young management team in, in all of the key areas so that we were getting trained. So it was very inclusive. Um, you know, and, and as a result, uh, a lot of what he taught us, we continues to be core to our values today. Um, my father is a, has been a great negotiator. He taught us, uh, you know, a lot about negotiation and just on, uh, you know, general uh, management and operations. Um, but he gave us a lot of, a lot of room and, um, and he gave us a great opportunity throughout the, the journey, uh, you know, to learn from him. And, and I think that, that certainly, uh, played a big factor in why it worked. It was less of a top-down approach, um, and it was uh, it was more of a of a collaboration. And from a negotiation perspective, what was the biggest lesson that he taught you? Uh, you know, there's 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 great strategies that that he had around uh, focusing on value. Uh, you know, Richter, his first company was an enterprise software company selling to large organizations. Icongo was in the same boat. I think if his biggest lesson is that if you can prove the value, you got to you could stick to uh, to your guns and um, the ROI that comes with uh, your your applications that you build uh, are 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 critical. How you build the application to be able to get to a payback quickly for a large organization and uh, and reduce their cost is. Uh, is very important. And it was very interesting because it was an e-commerce company uh, that, you know, went through the bubble uh, uh, and really started selling into a market where in the early days, people didn't believe in e-commerce. Um, so we focused a lot on different aspects of e-commerce, less around revenue augmentation, which is a difficult one to sometimes prove, uh, particularly in, in something new like e-commerce in 2003 and 2004, and more around um, cost uh, savings around digital automation of, of processes and so forth. And I think that was a very big key to, to our success. And uh, it comes you know, full circle now as we're, we're looking at a, at, at a recession coming up. Um, cost-cutting enterprise software solutions are 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 really important, and uh, it's not just revenue augmentation. Those are some of the those are some of the things that that you know off the top of my head you know remain kind of ingrained and and certainly very true today as it was you know 20 years ago when we started that organization. Got it. And obviously with uh, with iCongo, I mean, you guys really grew it nicely. Uh, into one of the leaders, you know, in the space. And then all of a sudden, you know, more towards 2011, you know, like there is um, a merger that happened with with Hibris. So so walk us through what happened there. Yeah, so in 2010, uh, you know, we had bootstrapped the company for 10 years. We were a very profitable organization. Um, we were rated at the time uh, top five globally by, you know, the independent research firms like Forrester and Gartner. And um, we landed up bringing on our first private equity partner. And that was a way for my father to 
take some chips off the table, start to take it easy. And for us as a management team to start accelerating into a space that was really still at its infancy stage at that point. Uh, what was interesting is a couple months after that uh, investment by a private equity firm, the private equity firm that we chose was a company out of Palo Alto called Huntsman Gay. Um, one of the bankers that we were working with introduced us to Hybris. And uh, I landed up meeting Karsten, who was the founder of, of Hybris in several, you know, I guess early 2011. And um, they were, it was very interesting. They were a European uh competitor. Um, the two of us were really the only two smaller organizations that were competing successfully against the large uh, software companies like IBM and Oracle and SAP and Microsoft. And um, we were, the, even the history of the organizations of starting in B2B and moving into retail, uh, the journey that we were on was very similar. And we, we hit it off and we felt as though uh, putting the two organizations would give a uh, would give us a really an unfair advantage in in the organ in the in the industry by being the largest independent software provider in our space and being um, agnostic to all the back office systems that a lot of the other solutions were very deeply uh, connected with. So we landed up very quickly deciding to merge the two organizations together. Icongo became uh, Hybris. We were leveraging a lot of their partner ecosystem that they had built. And um, and that was uh, probably the best decision that we made. Uh, together, we just exploded um, in growth over the next two years and became, uh, you know, rated the number one uh, enterprise software uh, platform for, for e-commerce in the world. Um, and, uh, and we were still at a point where we felt as though our story was just beginning. Uh, e-commerce was, was uh, progressing well. B2B e-commerce was still starting to take off. And um, we were on the path towards to do an IPO and uh, ultimately landed up selling to SAP for uh, around a, a billion and a half dollars in, in uh, middle of 2013. That's amazing. And, and I guess in, on the merger that we were discussing, how challenging was the integration? It was um, interesting, right? A German company uh, merging with a Canadian company, uh, it, you know, is not always very easy, right? There's different cultures, um, you know, different development philosophies. We had somewhat of different models as well. Uh, we were doing all of our own implementations. Hybris was was exclusively working with partners. So there were some fundamental differences in in, um, in the businesses and the culture that landed up um, being obstacles. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that Carson and I uh, and Ariel, who is the CEO, identified those um, those challenges. And uh, we decided to do an interesting HR experiment that paid off, um, which is during the diligence process, we came up with a plan. Uh, the, the deal was supposed to close in August. And we said, you know what, let's do something a little bit uh, different and try to cut down the integration process. Let's fly everybody from North America to Munich for Oktoberfest in September, end of September, have people, you know, stay together, have people uh, party at night, work together during the day. We'll spend a week as a company all together and, um, and get people to really know each other. And uh, we didn't tell a lot of people about it. We just did it. Uh, we, you know, and then on the last day we sent a, uh, 
a photo of the company to the board and saying, here's your, here's your, your new company, uh, you know, fully, fully, uh, you know, it's consolidated together. And, and that experiment worked out so well because it removed a lot of the cultural differences, uh, that can sometimes happen by email, um, or by phone. It, it put a face to people. And, and I think that it probably cut three to four months off the integration of the two organizations. And it, it, it kind of, leveled people and removed a, a lot of the the risk that a lot of the employees may have uh, perceived as well with uh, with a merger. So a little unconventional, uh, but to be honest, it worked so well. We did it for the next two years up until the point that we were around a thousand individuals and uh, we were flying people in from all over the world. But getting the company together for a couple of days and um, and working together, you know, proved to be probably the best thing that we've done. That's amazing. And obviously, it seems that you guys were blowing things up in a very, very positive way. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, why did you guys make the decision to go forward with an acquisition, you know, from SAP? So we were on the path towards a uh, an IPO, and um, we really wanted our, you know, independence. That was one of the things that we felt the the an IPO can provide us. You know, we felt as though we were still on chapter one of a of a very successful story and that um, that was a, an interesting way to accelerate and to remain independent. SAP ultimately decided, uh, you know, came to the table and, um, and, and had a lot of interest in the organization and, and did promise us, uh, you know, independence. Uh, they were going to uh, have no impact on, on our employees. There wouldn't be any layoffs. They would provide us with, um, you know, the resources and, and the flexibility to continue to, to grow the business in the way that we wanted to. And they really did hold true to their word on that. So we felt as though it was a great exit for our shareholders, uh, for great opportunity for our employees. Uh, it de-risked uh, the business uh, certainly as well. And, um, and we felt as though we can have a major impact on SAP. Uh, we were an aggressive management team. And we said, if we're going to do this acquisition, let's do a reverse takeover of SAP. And and ultimately, we did land up taking over the CRM business, uh, you know, which was uh, you know probably around a billion dollar business at the time, and and um, and and growing. So so we we landed up bringing on you know taking on a lot more responsibility, and uh, also getting you know quicker to our vision of seamless uh, customer experiences by by integrating some of the tools that SAP had. Got it. And then, obviously, you stayed there for, for a little bit. And then, I mean, once an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur, and another opportunity comes knocking. So what happened there? Yeah, I loved SAP. Um, I really did. It was a great experience for me. Uh, the management team at SAP was just phenomenal. And um, I really, I, to be honest, I was super engaged for the first year. I loved it. And um, after the first year, you know, as an entrepreneur, co coming from a 1,200-person company to a 65,000-person company, uh, that became, you know, different for me. And, and I, I love building product. I love being with customers. I missed it. Uh, you know, I was involved. It was still very exciting to be involved in very big deals and and to continue to change uh, the way that a lot of businesses were operating. But I mi I really miss that customer-facing aspect and being in the field and, um, and, and being able to be creative and make things happen. So my last year, I, I really started to think about what to do next. And, and certainly, I had a, 
you know, a non-compete that I needed to respect as well. And I started looking for new ideas. And, and what was interesting, it was 2014, is I, I went out and I ended up speaking to a lot of executives in retail and in manufacturing distribution and healthcare. And a lot of the discussions at the C-level um, in a lot of these organizations was starting to shift away from just e-commerce. A lot of companies had kind of gotten to a point where their e-commerce com- their e-commerce businesses were growing really successfully. And it, the conversation started to shift towards um, millennials entering into the workforce and um, what happens when, you know, with increases of labor, how do we protect our margins? Uh, margins and, and there was uh, the job market was starting to get tight. And Amazon was starting to pick up, so there was a, uh, a a reinvention that a lot of organizations felt as though they needed to do in order to better compete with Amazon. And I started putting a lot of these pieces together, and it pointed towards uh, really how companies can automate uh, a lot of their their workforce and and the experience that was happening in stores or or in a restaurant or in a healthcare institution. And when we looked into it, um, particularly the workforce management space, we we found that there's been very little innovation over the last couple of decades, even around how organizations communicate and and educate their workforces. Uh, most big companies that have hourly workforces right now continue to have bulletin boards in the back of their stores or their locations where they they pin up a schedule or a memo. Uh, you know, a lot of these hourly workers, they don't have email addresses. The companies don't collect their email addresses. It's impossible to really communicate at scale with them. So um, that was kind of that, that, that spurred the, the, the inspiration of starting WorkJam, which is why don't we bring the concepts of omni-channel commerce to workforce management? There's a digital transformation that can really um, increase the productivity and efficiency of organizations. Uh, while also making employees smile at the same time. And that was really interesting for us. We had this a lot of discussions at the time around dollars and hearts. How do you save dollars for an organization and also win the hearts of employees at the same time? It's pretty rare that, right? It hasn't, there's not a lot of systems that do that. And, um, and we had this vision of, of creating what we now call a digital workplace platform that um, – automated, digitally automated and transformed everything from scheduling to task management to learning management, communications, all into one platform to allow organizations to um, communicate at scale with their non-desk workforces, uh, both in a structured and unstructured way. So and, they, we said, and we said, let's just go for it. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it works. You just got to jump. So you definitely jumped here. And uh, and so what ended up being the business model for the people that, that are listening? How, how do you guys make money? So we sell our platform to uh, large organizations, um, and they, uh, they pay us a fee based on uh, per, a per user per month fee. It's a SaaS platform, multi-tenant SaaS platform, uh, or we have enterprise subscription models. So our customers include you know, large companies like uh, Woolworths in Australia, they have a couple hundred thousand employees, Shell Oil, a half a million employees worldwide, uh, companies like Alta Beauty, uh, Verizon, uh, you know, large, large organizations with um, quite a number of 
of uh, non-desk or hourly workers. And then we last year, we also have launched a mid-market initiative where we're targeting companies of 3,000 employees and above. And I understand that uh, you were talking about Shell. I mean, Shell was uh, your first customer and uh, it was quite an adventure. You know, like what happened there and managing two projects on opposite sides of the world. So tell us about this story. Yeah, Shell was our first customer. Uh, we spent two years building the platform. We had a really large team building the platform. Um, we identified early on that that we want to go after large enterprise. And, and uh, in order to survive in large enterprise, you need to have a robust system. So big investment in the platform in the first two years. And we, and we started to commercialize. And we went to our first trade show. It was the National Retail Federation trade show in January of uh, 2017, I guess. And uh, there was a walk up to the booth, which was Shell Oil. And they found what we were doing fascinating. Um, they had tried to build something internally with some of their other systems around communication and learning and task management and uh, had failed. It, it turns out to be very complicated, particularly when you uh, factor in compliance rules that are required and, and work rules and workflows. And they said, hey, this is really interesting. We have the exact same uh, vision as you guys. Let's do a pilot together, and if it works out, uh, we'll move into a global contract. And we said, you know, we were jumping up and down at the time. First customer, uh, you know, Fortune 5 uh, oil company, and we said, sure, we're going to do it. And they said, okay, great. The first project's going to be uh, in Malaysia and Austria at the same time, two markets. Now, we were like 12 people at the time. So to do uh, our first project on opposite sides of the world, uh, you know, sitting in Montreal was a really big challenge. I think that we spent, you know, two months basically working 20 hours a day, making sure that that was successful, uh, which it was. And then moved into a, uh, a global agreement. And, and now we're live, uh, you know, pretty much around the world with, uh, with Shell and, um, and continue to be very successful with them. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah, and you know, one customer leads to three others. That's always been, you know, my my rule of thumb, uh, you know, in in building businesses. So after Shell, we started to really take off and and uh, and create some phenomenal partnerships with some of the leading companies in the world. Of course, I mean, especially if you have big names. So uh, most definitely, and I know that you guys have raised quite a bit of money for this. How much money have you guys raised today? Uh, we've raised to date around $70 million. dollars. Um, you know, at the beginning, you know, we've invested as, an, a, management, as a management team coming off the SAP transaction. I, I, I should mention as well that the two people that I started WorkJam uh, with uh, were, were, were two people that I consider founders of iCongo as well. So we've been, we've been working 20 years together. This is our second go around. And um, You know, we brought on our first investors at probably after 24 months. So we've been investing uh, to date uh, in every round and uh, big believers in, in what we're doing. And, uh, and most recently, we closed a $50 million dollar round in, um, at the end of March. So that's interesting. So, so you guys, yourselves as founders of this business have continued to invest on every single run of financing in addition to the, the, the existing stock that you have as the founding team. Yes. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we love the opportunity and, and, uh, we, we, we're, we're believers in it. So, um, 
you know, we're, we're my vision, my view on it is, is uh, there's no other company that I'm more uh, passionate about and, and believe in than, uh, than work jam. So, uh, you know, while there's other interesting opportunities of companies to invest in through funds or individually, uh, you know, why not, why not invest in yourself? That's amazing. I love it. And and obviously you guys have amazing investors. I mean, I see here Lair, Founder Collective, Innovia Capital. Why did you choose these investors? Because I'm well, sure that they were probably throwing you money, you know, uh, after doing your exit with SAP, probably word got out. And, you know, I'm sure that you had people literally showing up without being announced, you know, to your office. Yeah, well, you know, we brought on our first partners in 2017, uh, Lear Hippo, Founder Collective, Blumber Capital. Um, and and we just, you know, part of part of the rationale there is, as well was as a Canadian company, uh, we felt as though it was important to have some 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 U.S. network. You know, to be honest, up until today, the majority of our customers are outside of Canada. You know, Canada has always been somewhat of a conservative country and, you know, organizations work, uh, you know, they tend to follow the U.S. a couple years after. Um, so the majority of our customers are actually in the U.S., in uh, in Asia and, and Europe. Uh, we're just starting to really focus on Canada now. So back in 2017, we felt as though it was really important to have um, a U.S. network that we should uh, that we can we can leverage. And um, we met Lear Hippo and Blumberg and Founder Collective. And, you know, my view on, on, on the on investors coming in is that the cultural fit is the most important thing. Um, you know, even if you land up not getting the exact valuation that you want, having good people around the table that think like you um, and fit into the culture of the organization allows you to move faster and you make it up on the back end. Um, so, so we just, we got really lucky. We, we met these individuals and they viewed the world in the same way that we did. And, uh, we, you know, essentially in that round, we, we allowed them to invest with us and it's been probably one of the best decisions that we've made. The, these individuals are, um, and these funds have been extremely supportive. They understand that it's not easy what we do. There's always bumps in the road. The road to success is never a straight line. It's a very uh, curvy line with a lot of obstacles in it, and um, and and most recently as well when we when we um, brought on Inovia Capital uh, as our most recent investor and partner, uh, it was a very similar thing. They they um, they just view the world in a very similar way, and you know life's too short to work with people that that you don't love. Um, you know sometimes these relationships, uh, probably most of the time, are are harder to get out of than a marriage. Um, so you got to pick your investors right and uh, and not think short-term either. Absolutely. And you were talking about cultural fit. So for an outsider, how would you describe the culture of WorkJam? Uh, we are a very inclusive um, organization, uh, very transparent. Um, you know, respect and inclusiveness is one of our core values. Uh, we strive for excellence and uh, and quality. We'd like to have fun uh, with a heavy focus on on winning and uh, and growth, and um, and and with that comes uh, you know a, a good amount of accountability. Accountability is another one of our core values, and um, so you know these are these are some of the core values that we we you know that's that's who we are. Uh, we're 
we're we're you know we're we're very passionate about what we're doing we want to win and we're going to do it in a very respectful and inclusive way and and uh and as a result the relationships that we have with our investors are are really important because you need to be able to speak to investors and and to your network about all the good and all the bad that's happening as well so that um you're able to get through these issues and and you know i think that's something that my father taught me as well you know working with him early in my career is the transparency and the group thought and strategic thinking that comes from including um you know many people that have seen a lot of different things in their in their careers as well is really really important to uh dealing with some of the obstacles that are thrown at you absolutely so for the folks that are listening how big is a work jump today i mean how many employees or what can you share you know that describes the the size of the business yeah uh, so we have 240 employees um our head office continues to be in montreal we have offices as well in um cincinnati as well as in uh, melbourne australia we're just opening an office now in london uh and certainly uh you know a good number of remote workers as well across the us mostly in sales and marketing um our customers are you know again large organizations as well as mid-sized uh, organizations very well-known brands uh in retail manufacturing distribution and healthcare and the business has been growing uh, on average at around 250 to 300% year over year for the past um uh three years now and wow. and we expect to continue to grow that way as well uh you know for the next several years as well so so you you were talking you know here about the future in the next several years so so imagine uh, steven that you go to sleep tonight and imagine it's an unbelievably snooze you wake up in five years <laughs> and you wake up in a world steve where where the the vision of work jam is fully realized what does that world look like you know i think we're starting it may not even take five years alejandro because the crazy thing about covid is that it has shined a light and emphasized the problem that we set out to solve uh you know six years ago now um which is that you need to have as an organization in order to be resilient the digital transformation of of your operations is um is paramount and it's it's survival at this point it's very similar to uh i would say 2010-2011 when retailers were being forced and and just they had to get into e-commerce in order to stay competitive. So what's happened with the virus particularly over the last couple of months is that organizations have found themselves in a way in a in a position where they're furloughing employees or they're essential they have essential workers and they have no way to communicate effectively with the field. Um and um and as a result our business over the last month or so has just you know it's 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 crazy we're signing deals now in in a 3 to 4 day sales cycle versus a 3 to 4 month sales cycle wow um so so you know the automate digital automation of of task and communications and open shift marketplace where you could do labor sharing within your organization uh, all of this is really being um focused on heavily right now by every organization and just the the thought process around business recovery how do you get people back to work what will a retail store look like after this virus is forcing organizations to really um you know take our type of solution 
you know, very seriously is in top of mind. Um, so I think it will, it will, it will end up being faster than five years as a result of this environment right now. Um, but I think that in five years from now, what I see is is a, a whole different bit, uh, operational paradigm within organizations where um, there is a, a direct line uh, down to the field uh, from a communication perspective with organizations. There's labor sharing, uh, both internally and externally within organizations. And, um, and there's a, a whole different level of... Um, of task management within organizations as a result of uh, this massive growth that we're also going to see in e-commerce and other uh, non-physical type activities within organizations. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, so Stephen, for the folks that are uh, listening, you know, there is uh, one question that, that I typically ask the, the guests that, that come on the show. And, and that is if you had the opportunity to go back in time, right? I mean, you've had a remarkable journey as an entrepreneur, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and perhaps have a chat with your younger self, with that younger self that was thinking about maybe, you know, going into business, maybe launching something, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself knowing what you know now before launching a company and why? I think the the most important thing, and I try to remind myself of this sometimes as well, because you lose track of it, is um, is is not to wear the rose-colored glasses. It's very easy to um, think things are just going to work and and to believe in an idea so much that you don't uh, take into consideration uh, some of the feedback that you're getting or um, some of the research that you've done because you're just so you're so passionate about a certain idea. Um, the rose-colored glasses can really be your biggest enemy uh, as an entrepreneur and. You try not to uh, repeat some of the mistakes that you've made in your career, but the rose-colored glasses can can make you do that. And I can tell you that when we first started Work Jam, we had the rose-colored glasses on. Uh, we thought we can be everything to everybody uh, in in what we were building, and um, you know we we were. We tried to do that as well at, at, at Hybris and iCongo, you know, to be a large enterprise software package as well as to go downstream. And um, it, it's very complicated. It doesn't work. There's different needs based on the size of the organization. But that first year at WorkJam, we thought we can be everybody to everybody. We had the rose-colored glasses on. And, um, and we probably wasted a good amount of time as a result of it. And once you take it off, you're able to get real clarity on what you need to do. So you need to self-identify when you have the rose-colored uh, the uh, rose-colored glasses on. I guess that would be my advice. Very, very profound. So, uh, Stephen, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, I'd be happy for anybody to reach out. My uh, email address is uh, Stephen S T E V E N dot Kramer K R A M E R at workjam dot com, and uh, certainly you can uh, message me as well on on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it, Alejandro. It was great speaking with you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me 
at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.